2: Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion The progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. Could the next Labour government be ours at the touch of a button? Technology still doesn't play much of a role in our democratic process. We vote with a pencil and paper and it's all counted by hand. Elastic bands for the bundles is about as modern as it gets. But as participation is on the rise, is this something we're missing out on? Or is that just proof that the system works? I'm Progress Deputy Editor Pope, and I'm with Progress Deputy Director Stephanie Lloyd and Digital Editor Sam Bright. Our guest today is Arik Chowdhury, Chief Executive of WebRoots Democracy, a youth led think tank focusing on how technology can improve democratic participation. Last month was the hottest May on record, making it very easy to feel like a melt. June is expected to be wet, bringing out slugs in the summer showers, but then it's like that all year round on Progressive Britain, according to our Twitter mentions. Despite the emergence of the phrase, kinder, gentler politics, the way in which political discourse is carried out appears to have worsened over the past few years. Webroots Democracy is an upcoming report out on the tone of political debate in the UK and how it could be regulated online. Arik, Could you tell us a little bit more about this report?
3: Yeah, so this report is part of a uh, wider project on regulating social media within politics. And this report is looking at what the picture of um, online abuse within political debate is currently. So not just politicians, but also uh, influencers and journalists. Um, How is the way that they're engaging with politics being affected by people sending them abuse or or death threats Mm. even. And then it's looking at what the role is for technology companies Facebook, Twitter and others, to actually crack down or, or combat this kind of um, poison in political debate? Or what is the role of the government or, polit- or political parties or uh, individuals themselves? And so it's obviously it's quite challenging. You know, Facebook isn't like uh, any other traditional media outlet. You know, they're getting billions of bits of content every day. Anyone can really make an account. And how do you really regulate uh, such a massive company that isn't even based within the UK? And the flip side is, do we just accept self-regulation and accept that our laws are being uh, implemented by a private US company? Um, So it's really looking at what we should be doing more to actually have our own uh, country uh, enforcing our own laws. Mm.
2: I mean, the Facebook regulation stuff is something that we keep coming back to on this podcast, I think. But do we think generally abuse has got worse in politics over the past few years? Is that a fair thing to
1: say? I think so and I think even if it hasn't got worse it certainly feels like it has got worse and there's almost become this kind of accepted norm that if you are on social media and you are in politics that that is just the way that people can behave I kind of spent a couple of years totally out of politics before I came back and joined progress and my twitter then in comparison to now is is somewhat different to say the <laughs> least but also I remember I remember like the first time I went on the daily politics for progress and literally for about a week, I had to just put my phone away because every time I went anywhere near Twitter, it was going so kind of, every time I went on there, there was so much abuse or so much traffic that was going in, it would literally crash the app constantly. And it's just, it's just unpleasant. But I, I do think there was a couple of things there there is one bit particularly, and it's something I've kind of noticed more as we talk about very importantly, the difference between kind of abuse and the the growth of that, but also then in terms of political challenge and they are two different things. And I think quite often now we're seeing kind of what is just people going, I actually just don't agree with the political point that you've made there Um, being called abuse, which I think actually really undermines at points then the level of sheer actual abuse that people really do Mm. receive on those things. So I think it's about, you know, being able to participate in this stuff online is a really good thing and it's a way to talk to people and hear different opinions. Although, quite often not. It's normally just a little echo chamber. But there is a difference between kind of just criticism of your political opinion and abuse. That
2: point about the echo chamber is quite interesting. I think I feel like a couple of years ago we were talking about people online are stuck in their little bubbles and they don't get opinions from outside of those bubbles. And that was, uh, it felt like a, a moment like this is the big problem in politics, that the divides are happening because people don't reach outside of their bubbles now. And Actually, now it seems kind of weirdly different.
3: I'd say I'd say that conversation at that time was within its own echo chamber itself. I <laughs> often um, yeah, yeah. say um, a lot of the talk around echo chambers, but also fake news, is the conversation of people who've lost elections. Mm. So at that time it was Ed Miliband had lost. Everyone on Twitter thought Labour were doing a lot better. It turns out they weren't. Um, I don't think the Conservative Party were having a conversation about echo chambers after that election. And the same with Donald Trump and Brexit. I don't think Trump supporters or uh, Brexit supporters are necessarily talking about echo chambers or fake news to the same extent as those who've, who've lost elections. But again, you know, it is a massive, uh, massive issue.
0: I think the the thing that with echo chambers is, um, I had a really good argument a few weeks ago, it's not that we're existing echo chambers. It's that we see people's views who we don't agree with, but they can't be articulated very well in 280 characters. So we're never really going to be convinced of their perspective. Mm. So basically you're just sat there feeling you're the only sane person in an Internet of Idiots. And that effectively, even though we do see other people's perspectives, it ingrains our own political viewpoints. Um, another thing I'd like to say on the on the level of abuse, it's quite interesting actually managing... Um,
1: well, or- you manage our Twitter account, exactly. so. so there's a level of abuse that you must just see on a daily basis. Exactly. So pleased
2: when we hired you, and I could just give you that task.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the only reason he was pleased. <laughs> but the difference between Facebook and Twitter is quite noticeable. In that, I I feel it's a lot easier to be anonymous on Twitter. You see a lot of people with their egg avatar or, you know, with fake names, et cetera. And the level of abuse on Twitter seems to be a lot more virile than it is on Facebook, at least it is on our accounts. Um, and I think Twitter is trying to clamp down on that, but perhaps it could do it could do more.
3: This is the big debate. Uh, one of the big debates in our report as well is looking at this idea of anonymity because people are uh, tend to be more abusive when they feel like no one will really know it's them. And Facebook does have policies in place itself. It has a real name policy and it has a profile photo policy. Obviously, there are still ways around it, but they make it more difficult for you to be anonymous. Uh, Twitter just doesn't have anything like that at the moment. Also, Facebook for businesses has a verification of identity. So some businesses, for example, can't have uh, Facebook pages without actually uh, verifying their identity with documents. Mm And Twitter could do the same thing. And, and one of the things we want to look at is whether we should, for example, get rid of um, this idea of blue ticks or replace it with something else. Because they, they were actually there to verify identity. So one debate in Twitter, at least, is whether they should start looking at verifying identity of users and, and whether the UK government should introduce some policy for social media platforms to have a certain number of users to actually start verifying identities.
1: And in terms of, sorry, I'm I'm going to still job and ask a question. Um, In terms of the report, are you, because obviously anecdotally, and kind of we feel like, um, I say this particularly as a a kind of gay woman in politics and things like that, that if you are not basically a white stripe, white-straight man called Bob, Tom or Simon, that you uh, are more likely to get a lot more abuse in terms of, and it will often become a lot more personal. We saw this with, uh, antisemitism and Islamophobia and and things like that over the last couple of years. Are we? Is is that? Does that bear out in stats? Like, is that is that? That's just not what people think. That is that is true. And is does it? Is there often a real difference in tone to that kind of abuse in the way that happens?
3: Yeah, I know personally, I get a lot of uh mm. like racist and Islamophobic abuse if I, if ever I go on TV or, or just make a yeah. make an opinion on something. And that does actually play into my mind when I do write tweets. I've often drafted tweets and then just deleted it because I can't be bothered yeah. Yeah. with the uh, the the backlash that there would be. In terms of stats, uh, I don't know for sure, but I know the most abused politicians that get the most toxic abuse are, mm. tend to be BME women. So yeah. Diane Abbott and Naz Shah, mm. I think are the two MPs that get the most uh, toxic abuse uh, online and it's that's like a daily basis.
1: Yeah, because it was in the last general election, wasn't it? Half of the abuse faced online was just Diane Abbott. Yeah. Like it was vile. Mm, and the kind that. of abuse is, is uh, even just, like yeah. it's just
3: disgusting, to yeah. be honest. You wouldn't see people do that in real life. And then,
1: Well, it's illegal to do that in real life. Yeah, I mean this is
3: the problem and no one's really tackling it. I mean mm. we shouldn't and I, I still don't think we should really leave it for self-regulation. I think this should be something that our government should take responsibility for. And often I think with social media companies, the easy option is to just blame them and say, oh, they should be doing more, but they're not really specifying what, and there's no real incentive if you're Twitter and Facebook to to do so, unless it's to combat bad, bad press.
2: Also this stuff about, you know, you can now go on in your options on a Twitter account, for instance, and essentially choose filter your own. Oh, I uh, feel the hell out of mine. You mentioned, and you know, I, I've been someone who's worked uh, with a profile in politics for over four years now and, before that was already doing blogging and tweeting about politics regularly. So, but it's only quite recently that I've changed my mentions to only get them from people that I follow. And I very rarely change it out of that just because I, I just can't be bothered with like picking up my phone and like people just being able to send me abuse straight to my phone. And It actually kind of is really depressing. And I say that as a, you know, white straight man, like, I, so I don't get any of this kind of this extra layer of, uh, of abuse that obviously others suffer. But what's quite interesting about it is one of the things that you can filter out is people who have egg profile pictures, mm. the, you know, the automatic profile that you, that you get given. It seems remarkable that within that, they seem to accept that that is a big problem in terms of the abuse that people get Mm. and yet won't do anything more yet in terms of dealing with with that issue. And
1: so many people don't know about those filters. So the amount of particularly kind of young BAME women within the Labour Party that that I kind of know and, and try and support as much as possible... When they, when their kind of Twitter's going off, I'm like, all I do, I make sure I literally text them and be like, these are the settings that you can put in because someone did that to me. And I'm like, this is what you can do to try and block that out. And it's like, you can get rid of people that haven't verified their phone numbers. So they've got Mm -hmm. multiple fake accounts often. And also that is when you see just how much of this isn't real or is the same person.
2: But part of the problem with that, I I presume, is that it puts the onus on victims to filter their own... Their own mentions, rather mm-hmm. than actually dealing with the, at the source of of the, of the problem.
0: Just nip in there and say that I'm not defending the social media companies by any stretch of the imagination, but they face a uh, distinct political pressure at the minute in that, and um, the free speech groups, if Facebook and Twitter do act, will jump on them and say they're trying to censor people because Facebook especially has been accused of having a liberal bias in the United States. And so they are very sensitive to any accusations from the right and the free speech libertarian right that they're censoring the platform in any way. So that puts them in a real bind
3: to act. This is the, this is the problem because the internet is seen as this sort of ideal for free speech and democracy. And I think we're now starting to see a shift Away from that a little bit as we start to realize what the consequences are of of having such an open internet. And one of the things we probably won't look at in the report, but one of the things we've looked at before is the sort of language of the internet. So we refer to things as being open or closed. And one thing that I would rather we referred it to as civil and uncivil. So, civil, you know, in a civil society, we have rules and regulations and fairness in place because we accept the alternative is worse. And I think with Twitter at the moment, Especially Twitter, anyway, because Facebook does have a lot of a lot more checks and balances in place. Is that it is an uncivilized place to be, and it shouldn't be the case that you have to be, you know, thick-skinned to have an opinion. Because really, that's what's clamping down on free speech mm. is the fact that people don't feel like they can they can express their opinion safely on the internet.
1: I think is as well with this is it's it, it's important that the government does something, but also it's very difficult for an individual government to do something in and of itself when you're looking at, you know, companies that are. In countries all over the world and actually i think it's where oh god am i going to talk about brexit is that <laughs>
2: you can't help yourself
1: i can't but no but it's that concept of a political union of people being able to come together and say this is a common problem that we all face there is a collective solution that we're going to have to do to solve this and i, I just can't see a way of it happening properly or effectively without that
2: so a final question on this bit You were saying earlier that you would like to see this as a legislative solution rather than falling back on the internet companies to sort it. What kind of thing would that look like? What kind of legislation could really solve this problem?
3: And it could be something like if you want to generate revenue in this country, you have to abide by certain rules. And these certain rules could be, for example, if you're a platform that has more than a million users in the UK, you have to verify the identity of each user. Um, That could be a legislation it's really looking at solid rules that you can actually put in place. I mean, right now, if you look at the sort of lines that the government's saying it's a voluntary code of practice, um, you know, Matt Hancock can't even get all of the um, social media platforms that he invited to turn up to meet with him. That's just not good enough to to expect you know, these massive companies to just uh, voluntarily do stuff that will damage their business and damage their, their profit, which is essentially what is, needs, needs to be done is to actually get them to... Recruit more staff if that's necessary to implement certain changes or to invest uh, heavily in uh, new ideas, new policies for their platforms.
2: So that report that you're releasing will be out later this year, I think. Yeah,
3: planning for November 2018.
2: Perfect. Uh, We do need to take a a break there. But next we'll be talking about using tech for improving democratic participation.
1: My name is Jasmine Beckett and I'm standing for the Labour Party's National Executive Committee. Along with my fellow centre-left candidates for the NEC, we are campaigning for Labour Party members to have a say on Brexit at Labour Party conference. All members want a say on the biggest issue facing our country at the moment. You can sign up to the campaign now at laboursay.eu.
2: Political party membership has doubled over the past five years from an all-time low turnout has risen in the last four consecutive general elections and the eu and scottish referendums of the past four years have seen higher turnouts than any election in decades but is the failure to harness new technology in the democratic process stifling wider public involvement Um, Arik, if we can start with you again are we seeing a resurgence in democratic participation do you think
3: i would still say our democratic participation is absolutely terrible i mean bar referendums you yeah, know referendums personally i'm very against them as an idea. I think we we have a representative democracy for a reason and we pay politicians to deliberate over the details of policies. I don't think we should outsource that in referendums. But you know, if you look at uh, local elections, for example, you're still seeing turnouts of thirty-three percent. Our general elections, you know, we celebrate a turnout of sixty-six percent, even though that's, you know, one in three people that you walk past in the street not participating in that election. So I do think we're we're in a crisis stage in democracy, not just here but around the world. You know, these turnouts are worse in America and in, in certain parts of Europe. And I, I do think there is a, a need to actually look at this from scratch and understand why people don't engage and what can be done better to actually ensure that people are participating in election and in, a, in an informed way.
2: And what what kind of role do you think technology has to play in, in all of this? Then,
3: so one uh, reform I particularly advocate is the introduction of an online voting option. Um, so this would be like postal voting, so you can still vote by post and in person, but you'd just be able to vote on your smartphone or your laptop, for example. Um, one of the main benefits of that is that there are many groups in society who are still unable to physically cast an independent vote. And they are uh, often people with disabilities, um, who are who maybe housebound disabilities, um, people who are vision impaired, who can't physically see the ballot. Or people who are situated abroad in might might, diff, uh, might face difficulties navigating the uh, postal voting system. You know, we, we're talking—you know—we're 100 years now from the first women getting the vote. There are still women today who can't vote. Um, you know, I mentioned vision impaired voters. What is in place currently is you have this tactile voting device, which is essentially a Braille template that you put over your ballot paper. only one percent of vision impaired users use Braille now. It's become very out of fashion, very uh, very much overtaken by technological alternatives. Mm. And so for those voters, yeah. uh, online voting actually represents an opportunity for them to engage in the democratic process. And they're a group that could be completely forgotten about. Um, and there are other countries that have, that have introduced this on the same basis. So Australia, parts of Australia have introduced this since 2011 on, the, on that basis of voters with disabilities not being able to vote. So that, in my view, is is the main um, straightforward reform we could introduce. Obviously, there's loads of challenges Can
2: can I come to Sam and Stephanie for a minute? Are are you guys in favour of online voting, do you think?
1: I'm mildly scared what would happen if the Russians got a hold of (laughs) (laughs) it? I think, yeah, in principle, I think it is a good thing in the sense that if there are ways that you can help people participate in democracy, that's really Hmm. important. Um, And I know from far too many years of going and knocking on people's doors on polling days and running around like a lunatic like you knock on someone's door and there are many people who are like I physically can't get to the ballot box and they're lucky if they've had someone put a leaflet through their door or knock on their door and be like let us help you let's find that situation but there are far more people that don't get any of those means to be able to do that than there are that that do so uh yeah I think it's really I think it would be a good thing um I like the fact you can only just it's only quite recent that you've been able to like register to be able to vote It's just ludicrous. Like there are so many things, there are so many things you can do now um, with technology, but I do think, I mean, the worry would always be the ability to be able to interfere with Mm. that situation.
2: Sam, what do you think? I mean,
0: historically I've, I've followed your work for quite a while a week at web Roots, and historically i was a big fan of online voting i think over the past few years i've become a bit more skeptical about it i am particularly worry about i mean in a in a restricted sense i'm very much in favor in favor of people who don't have um, access to be able to go and vote but i worry about the fact that we might be creating sort of political robots through online voting in that you've seen the sort of momentum Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn model where you essentially sign up um, on their email list. And then you're kind of caught in this um, cycle where they say, vote in this election, click this link, vote for this candidate. And it doesn't seem to be a deep democratic form of participation involved in that sort of online voting. And, I wonder whether pausing and actually having the physical um, need to go down to the ballot box causes people to reflect a bit and think, oh, you know, who am I voting for? Why am I voting? I'm actually going out of the house. You know, I'm taking an hour out of my day, you know, and I I worry about not just, you know, the numbers of people who are participating, but the quality of our participation as well.
1: I'm not not sure I'd necessarily fully agree with you on that, Sam, in that sense. I, I do think... Whether you're voting online or whether you're voting physically, I think traditionally we'd think probably people would feel more invested in their vote if they're doing it physically. But I do think it also gives you the opportunity and the ability to be able to give people far more information about what it is that they are voting on or what that's, you know, what the implications of some of that is. Which currently we don't really do anything as as a state there's nothing that's really like here are all of the reasons why you should vote not who you should vote for or what they believe in but we do nothing really that actually encourages people we've slashed citizenship education what the conservatives have to be very clear slash citizenship education in schools so there's even less of an understanding of that and i think actually if there was a move towards more technology playing a role within democracy it would give people the opportunity to have more of an understanding as to why the process in and of itself is important because the main reason that you get when you knock on someone's door and ask them to vote and they go, absolutely not, is everybody's all the same. I don't even know what they'd do for me anyway. Why would I care? Yeah. Um, and we got this even when we were on Birmingham Pride and we were like stickering people and they were like, I don't do politics. It's not what I do. At a Pride, which is a political event in and of itself. So... I don't know. I think it could be a good thing. As I I say, I'm always wary for the Russians, uh, though.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a big big worry. Um, I I, I would say that I I generally agree about giving people uh, general information to a wide um, variety of political perspectives and then allowing them to go out and make their decision. And providing that information online is totally the right thing to do. And voter registration efforts, as you mentioned, Technology can be a great enabler of that. I mean, we've seen, I think Facebook, Arik, you'll probably be able to tell me a bit more, but uh, uh, Facebook did a test where they put at the top of a certain demographics, timelines, a reminder to go out and register to vote. And that boosted turnout by something like 30%. It can be a great enabler technology of getting people out to vote. I'm just worried about that last step of actually ticking your ballot.
3: So the the ticking a ballot side... Um... I've heard this a lot, this argument that making it too easy kind of takes out some of the, the informed nature of it. But the, the truth is the current system is very easy to vote in. There's a reason why your polling station isn't on the seventh floor of a building. It's because pe- they know that people won't want to go up all of those flights of stairs. And the actual process is just a tick in the box. Um, and also it's a privilege to be able to f- be able to physically go to those, those uh, polling stations. So for a lot of people, they just don't have that uh, as an option. And you, you can make it, you know, you can make it more informative by having an online platform. You can have information about candidates, so that people can actually make more of an informed choice. You know, often even in certain elections, people don't know what they're voting based on. They might vote in a local council election based on national politics, for example. In terms of the Russians, this is obviously maybe the biggest biggest challenge is, is how do you ensure that there is that public trust? And therefore, what you need to get is a system where you're where you and uh, election officials are able to verify that the correct vote is counted that was the same as the one that's cast and there are technologies that can do that so i'm not sure if you're aware of blockchain blockchain is a is a technology that can be used in this uh, particular application because it's a it's a ledger that can't be edited in any way there's, there's multiple versions of it the other side of it is that no one really knows none of us know whether any vote we've ever cast in any election was counted um, or
1: counted properly I mean exactly I'm a big right. fan of all night elections we always have the debate about whether they're or not but like if you ask me to count like 500 easy bits of paper at 3 in the morning not a chance well, no, I mean
2: I, I've been one of those people who obviously every political party can have the the people there watching over um, the counters and making sure and you know they do make mistakes and you they will, are you, human you will beings, see yeah, yeah. Absolutely I mean I'm generally very skeptical of um electoral reform Most o- of any <laughs> electoral reform generally on um Sam's point about whether it gives you a better connection um actually online voting is something that I'm I'm actually really in favor of I think that uh, ever since I got you know food takeaway apps on my phone my decision making about what pizza I want hasn't particularly been impaired and with um with respect to the Russian hacking obviously uh, you know I'm, I don't know I'm not a kind of technolog- Technological whiz who can tell you about the security implications of it. But countries like Estonia, I think, are introducing online voting. They've had and
3: it since 2005. And
2: actually, they are using technological pro- progress as a way to fend off from Russian interference yeah. in their country. And I think that is a really positive thing. And actually,
1: because they've got, they I think is it Estonia that have got the ID cards as well, like the yeah. technology yeah, yeah, yeah. ID cards it that fair. follow you around. Yeah. And I think this is the difference, right? Used right and correctly in the way that Estonia it is something that absolutely everybody can have access to and all of that is really important in a way of doing it, not what the Conservatives are currently trying to do, which is say you can only vote if you have these specific forms of ID cards, which will always block the most disenfranchised people out from being able to vote. And we saw the the number of people that were being blocked at the last, even the local elections.
2: So my scepticism around online voting comes, Arik, you were saying earlier that you are a big believer in representative democracy, and I think you have a lot of sympathy for that view around this table. <laughs> but don't you think that online voting might lead to more of a push for more direct democracy?
3: Yeah, so a lot of people talk about the potential of online voting more with that mm. in their mind. I mean, if people vote for a party that wants to introduce something like that, that again is is democracy. Personally, yeah. I'm against the idea of direct democracy because, you know, like I stated before, I, I think we have representative system for a reason i just think at the moment our system isn't isn't working in terms of it's not representing people and one of the reasons you know people say obviously there are lots of reasons people don't vote like politicians don't represent them for example but the electoral commission did a study last year i think looking at the 2017 election about why people didn't vote and a third of them said that they didn't vote because they weren't able to get to a polling station in time so for that that's you know that's millions of voters that would equate to. Uh, taking part in elections. And that's not even to to talk about the voters with disabilities or voters abroad. Mm -hmm. So I think it would have a a positive impact on representative democracy.
2: And do you think there's going to be a big push for online voting and this kind of thing. I mean, more than 500,000 people signed a petition to stop Uber's license to operate in London being revoked only a few months ago, um, despite obviously the company's exploitative work practices and concerns about passenger safety. Do, do you actually think that shows how highly people value convenience in their lives these days? And is that something that we need to kind of bear in mind about all this?
3: So in, in the UK, uh, the Scottish government and the Welsh government are both announced that they're going to do pilots of online voting. Hmm. And that is something uh, I understand the UK government is uh, at least researching. And the Labour Party are are very supportive of it. And actually all parties do use online voting for their own elections, including the Conservatives who were going to use it for the election of Theresa May slash Andrea Um, And just touching back on the previous point, I find it fascinating that no one's ever allege that the election of jeremy Ho- jeremy corbyn was ever hacked because actually it, it fits a lot of the criteria do
1: you know if you've got a secret on this i mean i personally do think it was hacked. What a it, that it, does, it
3: does fit all of the criteria an outside candidate um winning unexpectedly mm. you know lots of people engaged in that election and political parties do understand the benefits of it
2: you know one of the reasons that I uh, kind of I'm so convinced by online voting is because I've been a Labour Party member for so long, and I see how much easier it is to vote now than a few years ago. But uh, you know, the, the TUC also launched um, a new app this week, and and that is about kind of improving their process and their engagement with people, specifically young people and people in uh, in stable job se- sectors who are less likely to be unionised, um, to give them more information about their rights at work and and things like that. So do you think we're going to see more of this from progressives?
1: I think so. And I think Francis O'Grady did a fantastic uh, piece in The Guardian, I believe it was, about um, the kind of reform of the TUC and how when the workplace has transformed so much, trade unions have to do the same in order to be able to meet those requirements. And I think we're already seeing trade unions – do some of this individually. So Community Trade Union for the last couple of years have been doing some phenomenal work on uh, people that are self-employed and working with an organisation called IndieCube to be able to do that. Um, And I think it's just one of those things of the world is changing. The way that people interact with things is very different. The way that people's days are structured are very different. So, you know, flexible working is an important thing. Why would you not make it easier for people to be able to to go and vote and do that? Like, Mm. why can I do literally almost everything on my phone other than when it comes to any form of basically public service where it's like, "Mm -mm, no, not allowed. Um, Or if you do download an app, it's about, looks like it was literally made about 10 years ago. So (laughs) I think it's only going to be a good thing in making people feel more connected with it on a more regular basis rather than just once every four years people have a bit of a row on the telly Mm -hmm. and then your school turns into a polling station. I just think it's a good thing.
2: And outside of... Specifically, state run uh, services. Do you think that technology is playing a big role in, in wider political participation? I mean, Sam was talking earlier about the success of Corbyn and, and momentum in terms of getting people involved online, getting their email addresses, speaking to them online, and getting them to vote in internal elections online. Is this a pattern that we're seeing more widely?
3: I mean, I spent the last election at um, Newspeak House, which is a place in Shoreditch for political technologists. And what they had there was an election war room. Well, that's what they called it. But um, basically a bunch of developers creating apps around the election. One of them, you know, many of them are actually quite successful. So one of them, GE2017.com, this is a voter advice application uh, where they compare the manifestos of different parties and people you know, take the quiz and see who they match to. They had two two or three million users and they built that in like a week. Right? Um, another one was uh, an app called Who Targets Me? And this basically was volunteers downloading a plugin on Google Chrome and feeding information about uh, the election adverts they were getting so that they could understand what the strategies of different political parties were, who they were targeting with what kind of adverts. Um, so I definitely think it's, it's playing more of a role. I mean, that's just from the citizen side. Mm. From political parties, you know, they're going to town with it, basically. You know, the extreme side is looking at sort of Cambridge Analytica, Uh, you know highly uh, targeted advertising but also the momentum style campaigning making it a bit more personal using videos like humorous content they did that very well and i Mm. I do think that played a big role in terms of the you know the relative success of labor in that election particularly when you look at uh, university areas and how many of those uh, voters actually were exposed to a momentum video for example
0: I feel like I'm the skeptic in the room today. <laughs> which is really quite Good.
1: ironic, since you're a digital editor. <laughs> well, uh, sure,
0: exactly. you know you've got to you got to scrutinise these things. Um, <laughs> but basically, I, I think it's quite, I think it's quite ironic that the um, that the news story after the 2017 general election, which essentially created this myth in people's minds that there was high youth turnout, was a piece of fake news. The whole 72 percent turnout that was. Um, that was plastered across just one the guy tweeted it. It was just one guy who randomly tweeted it. Got picked up by the FT and the BBC, and then I had to walk into somebody's office at the BBC and say, "No, we've got to do a fact check on this. It's wrong." <laughs> um, so it was, you know, there are kind of you know political participation. I think has gone up, but the extent to which it has. I think is questionable and the fake news side of it shows that it's not necessarily beneficial in all circumstances and you know we've we we, i think we've got to not charge into the future um and 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 be completely um oblivious to our surroundings we've got to be able to um we've got to be able to take all this in context
1: i agree with you entirely but i do think there is something You know, if anyone has ever got a Lib Dem bar graph through their door on a leaflet, like it doesn't, there was, people lied about stuff in elections and on leaflets before. Like you could do your local leaflet and put it through some direct mails and it wasn't the big national stuff that would come out. Like it was always, people kind of always did some of this stuff, but it was just a different way of doing it. And it's not as easy, it wasn't as easy for people to know that it had happened and then to share that it happened afterwards. So I think some of this has already been in existence for a long time. I do think it's important, however, when we go back to the kind of previous conversation we were having about regulation with regards to abuse that we see online, like there has, there cannot be a situation where the laws that we have kind of in real life aren't the same in terms of what happens in our digital lives. And I think that's going to be by far the biggest challenge in terms of making this happen, because I think it kind of will happen whether people want it to or not, just naturally. Um, Because as you say, it just takes a couple of people to sit in a room and develop some apps and and make a huge influence in that way. But I do think that the the conversation then has to go, how do we then control that and regulate that to ensure that no matter who you are, whether you are the Labour Party or the Conservatives, or you are a smaller party like the Greens or something like that, that, that you have the ability to have the same kind of platform.
2: You say that the uh, Welsh and the Scottish governments are looking at this. The UK government is looking at this, but in a slightly kind of uh, more ponderous fashion. What do you think of the big? Finally, what do you think of the big kind of blockages to as moving forward with this? In the For next online years? voting, yeah.
3: Um, big challenge. I would still say is is public trust. As as I'd say, recently people are starting to really wake up to the dangers of the internet, and in, especially in political debates. Mm-hmm. You know, not just whether Russia are hacking into election systems also this idea of, of disinformation and whether we're actually getting good quality uh, you know, knowledge about elections and candidates online. So I think it, a lot of it is around building trust. And I also think at the same time, you're seeing some people turning away from traditionally big social media platforms like Facebook, for example. A lot of young people today might not use Facebook and therefore are we already falling behind in the debate by focusing on these major platforms rather than newer platforms which again will benefit from not having that same same kind of scrutiny Mm. so that's why i'd say the bit the big challenges is building that trust and especially with online voting when it comes to your votes you have to guarantee that people understand that it is their vote which is being counted not some vote of a russian bots or or results have just been tampered with
2: that's really interesting, essentially. I think that kind of ties into exactly what Stephanie was just saying. this is, is The lack of trust created by people using old-fashioned communications um, to kind of deplete trust, whether it's on the side of a bus or a leaflet or whatever, is actually kind of affecting uh, how, we, how we do it online. I think we need to wrap up there, um, but you know, we'll definitely be looking into some of these newfangled social media sites and make sure the progress is on there, so do find us on Bebo.
1: You've literally <laughs> never sounded older. <laughs> <really>. <laughs> <These> newfangled sites. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Areek, uh, for joining us. You can find out more about these campaigns and reports at webrootsdemocracy.org.
1: So every week, Connor asks his political pub quiz question, Connor, what's your question this week?
2: So my question this week is on voting and democracy and all that sort of stuff, you know, to fit in so beautifully with the subject matter today. I want to know what was the first Labour leadership contest to involve an all-member ballot.
1: So, Connor will be revealing the answer to this on Friday's review show. If you think you know the answer, just make sure you tweet in either at Connor Pope or at Progress Online with your answer. uh, Or you can email in office at progressonline.org.uk. And the first couple that get that get a fancy Progress mug.
2: We need to leave that here, but we've been delighted to have Arik Chowdhury joining us today. In the meantime, please do leave a comment on iTunes and a review and a rating, and we'll be back on Friday. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was When in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons. And many thanks to the brilliant Caroline Crampton, who produced this podcast.
3: The yes